Welcome and good evening to all this evening. Once again, as a session, we do appreciate you coming out as we seek to know from the scriptures what it is that is our duty, what the Lord has called us to, and what we anticipate in the month to come. But before we do that, uh, let's first of all go to the throne of grace together. Let us pray. Stand in prayer. Almighty and ever blessed God. We come before you, Father, a company of people who desire the law that comes from your mouth. Father, we would be called by your name, not merely through the lips, but also, Father, we would be designated your people through obedience. Father, we long to be a people more conformed to the likeness of our great and covenant mediator. We long to be conformed more into the image of Christ. And so, Father, we seek from your word, that which you would direct us in. Lord, we would learn from your hand alone. What is our duty? What would encourage that growth in Christ that we so crave? And that which would most extol Christ in these lands. But Father, we are a needy people. Our minds slow and dark. Father, we are often so wise in sin, but so simple in righteousness. So, Father, we ask that you bless this time. We pray that in your mercy, Lord, you would open your word to us. And, Lord, we ask that you would incline our hearts after the things that we find here. Bless us, O gracious God, then, in these ways as we seek these things through Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, before we begin here, I'll just make a brief comment again about the handouts that are in the back. Um, this evening, uh, toward the end of our time, we will be referencing these again, so you'll want to have one handy. Um, but like I said, if, if you need a copy of that, we're getting back. Um, so feel free to grab one at any stage. Well, as we come to our work this evening, I want to make just a few preliminary comments. Um, first of all, I want to reiterate why we're doing what we're doing. As we said before, uh, last Lord's Day afternoon, these lectures are designed to really encourage us to think about covenanting as a whole, and also to prepare us, of course, for entering into that covenant, um, acquiescing in these obligations toward the end of this month, September. And also the purpose of these lectures, too, is also to give us some further clarity on something that I think has been largely forgotten across the board. Common as it might have been at one stage, it certainly isn't anymore. So that's really the purpose for these lectures this evening. And I want to review briefly what we talked about last Lord's Day. Uh, Friends, I want you to remember the focus of our time was on corporations, moral corporations. And just briefly, I'll summarize what we, what we said there. A corporate body, as a body, is obliged to and judged by the moral law. You remember, if you're looking even at your glossary, the idea of a corporation is the connection of more than one individual to form one single entity. And we're saying here that a corporate body is obliged to and judged by moral law. And so as such, secondly, an action that is considered corporate, that is done either by the generality of the body's members, or the body's representatives, or by a few with permission of some kind given by the generality, these things are evaluated by the law of God. And so we can say that a corporate body, whether it be a church, 
a nation, a confederation of nations, these corporations can acquire genuine guilt, even as a body. Now, we spent all of our time um, looking at just the idea of corporation to come into really our discussion for this evening. While I believe that, that I, those ideas we referred to last words, they are fundamental, genuinely fundamental to how we think about covenanting in general. What we're coming to this evening is the practice itself. What is covenanting? And is it, as we are saying and have been from the beginning, is it really an obligation? Is it a duty? And what I want us to do then is to really take hold of the scriptures to answer that very basic question. That means then that for the 30 minutes that we have this evening, uh, we have over 70 scripture references to go through. My aim is to go through all of them, uh, to read them to you. Um, but because of that, I won't be asking you to turn to everyone. If you do, if you would like that list, um, please feel free to talk to me today and I'll be happy to get that to you. But friend, we are just dealing with the scriptures now. We are asking the question of God and of his word. What really is covenanting and is obligatory to us? But before we ask that question, of course, we do need to define our terms. And so I take you back to the glossary just for a moment and ask the question, well, what is covenant? And there you'll notice that it's a mutual voluntary compact between two parties on terms or conditions. And that, that raises, of course, the question, not just generally, but more specifically, what really is corporate religious covenanting, this thing that we're engaged in this evening. It is, as we said there in the glossary, a duty in which a society covenants with God and invoking God as their God, the body vows obedience to his commands through Christ. So that's our principal subject this evening. This idea of covenant, and particularly corporate religious covenanting. Again, if you have your handouts there, the glossary there defines these terms just as I read them to you. But that brings us to the question, well, what are the principal elements of these corporate religious covenants? And this will help us further define what we're really looking for in the scriptures. And though there are other elements to it, such as confession of faith and confession of sin, really the principal constituent elements of covenanting, at least the most controversial, are found in the oath and in the vow. Both of those elements are present in corporate religious covenanting. Religious oath and religious vow. And I'll define those to you simply by using the Westminster Confession of Faith. So how does the confession of faith define an oath? A lawful oath is taken when one, swearing solemnly, calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth, and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. I'm taking that, of course, from the confession of faith, chapter 22, paragraph 1. What is a vow then? A vow, the confession says, is a solemn promise that is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone. And that it may be accepted, it is to be made voluntarily, out of faith and conscience of duty, in way of thankfulness for mercy received, or for the obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties, or to other things, so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. Friend, very simply, what is an oath? An oath is calling God to witness something, to determine perhaps the truthfulness of a statement. God is invoked, in this case, to be as judge of truth and judge of all, the mediator, in any case. A vow is a solemn promise made, as the confession says, to God alone. We are vowing to do something when we say to God, this is our intention. Now, both of those elements are the principal constituent elements, as I keep repeating, 
of covenanting. An oath, as we said in our definition, is just that invoking of God. That invocation of God to bear witness to what we are doing. And then the vow, of course, are those promises that we make to God. Now, friend, having those things in front of us, we're now enabled to ask the question, I think, more correctly. Is this something in the Scriptures command? Now, I'm going a little bit out of order. If I I were writing this down, if we were reading it, perhaps we would say we need to go through the entirety of the character of covenanting before we ask the question of, is this something that's applicable today? But friend, I think in our generation, you and I will be quick to, quick to agree that, that generally speaking, most Christians don't think that these are things that belong to Christian practice and piety. So I want to address that question first. Is this something for us in the New Covenant? And so first of all, friend, I want to ask the question, is this something that was even commanded in the Old? Now, it is commanded. I want you to notice those scriptures say this, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. And serve him, and shalt swear by his name. The word swear there represents the making of an oath. When we swear something to God, we are invoking God in the sense of a religious oath. Deuteronomy 6.13 that I just read to you says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. The fear of God is commanded, the swearing in God's name commanded. Again, Deuteronomy 10.20 Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. Again, Jeremiah 4, verse 2 Thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. What's striking about that text, friend, is of course the prophet is looking to the new covenant. We'll, get, we'll come to that in a moment. But especially what he's taking to Israel is this obligation. She has left off this rightful use of a religious oath. And so this is the prescribed way of repentance. Thou shalt swear the Lord liveth. Again, Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeded of his mouth. Now what's striking there is not only is there the command to vow. But even the scriptures describe the way in which the vow is to be made. I want you to take just for again, again, another text. that shows us not about swearing, but about vowing itself. Psalm 76, 11. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Not merely pay what you have vowed, but vow and pay. Again, you have here in Ecclesiastes 5. The statement, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Pay that which thou hast vowed. And of course, there the preacher is telling us that if we're going to make a vow to God, we need to keep it. But what's underlying that is the idea that not only are vows lawful, but it's expected of the pious. Note again what he says, when thou vowest a vow unto God. And so, not surprisingly, throughout the Old Testament, you have, of course, these elements given to us through example. Just to make another example here from Ezra. Ezra says to the people, Let us make a covenant with our God, to put away all the wives and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of the Lord, and those that tremble at the commandment of God, and let it be done according to the law. Then, just a few verses later, he says, Then arose Ezra, and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they should do according to his word. And they swear. That's Ezra 10, verses 3 and 5. 
Nehemiah also gives us another example. I contended with them and cursed them, and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God. They're speaking of those who were repenting in Nehemiah's day. What about vowing? Genesis 28.20, Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and, and raiment to put on, then, says Jacob, he will give himself to the Lord. Of course, Hannah, again, 1 Samuel 1.11, She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. I read all of those to you simply to show you, and so many more can be given to you, of what the scriptures teach is given to us not only by precept, but also by example. The godly are engaged in swearing to the Lord and also in making vows in the Old Covenant. But what's striking is, as you read throughout the Old Testament, this is not expected to remain only an Old Covenant reality. Now this, of course, I think is crucial for our understanding, especially in answering the question, is this valid for today? Let me read to you a few prophecies from the Old Testament. Here the Lord says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Of course, the Lord here is speaking of the consummation. But everything, everything here, he says, will swear unto the Lord. Then, Isaiah 65, 16. He who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former times' troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from mine eyes. Now, this is a striking prophecy that looks to the engrafting of the Gentiles and even the millennium. Note what he says here. The prophet tells us plainly, In that day, he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. What you see also in the case of vowing is the expectation that as long as Zion stands, this will be performed. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee the vow shall be performed. Psalm 65, 1. Well, you could say, well, perhaps the prediction is only for Israel. Maybe when Israel is re-engrafted, that's what the prophets are thinking of. They'll return to these practices of swearing and making vows. I want you to look at Isaiah 19 just for a moment. Note what the prophet there says. The Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Again, I can give you another prophecy from Jeremiah 50 to the same effect. They, that is the Gentiles, shall ask the way to Zion with their faces to the word, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. Gentile nations in the new covenant age saying this, let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant. That's Isaiah 50 verse 5. Oh, sorry, Jeremiah 50 verse 5. And so, friend, the expectation of the old covenant was that not only would the practices, the constituent elements of covenant, remain throughout the old covenant period, but they also saw that in the new covenant as well, these things would be part and parcel of biblical piety. 
Well, then, friend, that brings us to the question. Is covenanting, then, still a duty? Can we see this from the New Testament? I'll bring, first of all, the most basic objection to it. And I'll read you just from Matthew 5, the text that most would turn to. Here Christ says, Ye have heard that it hath been said of them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. And then here the Lord says, But I swear, I say unto you, Swear not at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. I just read to you Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. James as well says something similar. James writes, Above all things, my brethren, swear not. Neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, lest you fall into condemnation. And friend, these are the texts that we encounter immediately. The text seems to say in both cases, do not swear at all. What do we do with this? Well, friend, I want to take you first of all to the Matthew 5 text. Of course, in Matthew 5 you have the Sermon on the Mount. And what is Christ's aim in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the aim, of course, is to correct the many gross deviations from the law of God that were common in his day. Many were adding to the law, fencing the law through rabbinical tradition. The Tanite authorities of the day that were formed just a generation before Christ were already establishing the rabbinical tradition that today is embodied in the Babylonian Talmud, the Mishnah, and so forth. Christ is responding to that tradition. And so, friend, as you're looking at Matthew 5, we have to to keep that in mind. If we're looking at Matthew 5 and we forget that context and we have what we would call maybe a literalist reading of the text, well, friend, Matthew 5 would encourage bodily harm, cutting off our arms and plucking out our eyes. It would also vacate the right of personal property and even self-defense. Of course, Christ is not disannulling any of those principles. In fact, most people who would look at these texts as prohibiting swearing certainly don't go around urging you to cut off your hands. Of course, what Christ is doing here is he is correcting something. But the question is, what do we make of this? Well, what is the abuse, first of all, that you find here? What's striking is, in Jewish tradition, you find this. I'm reading directly here to you from rabbinical tradition. The rabbis write, If any swear by heaven, by earth, by the sun, and although the mind of the swear be under these words to swear by him who created them, Yet this is not an oath. Note the parallel to Matthew 5. Again, if any swear by heaven, by earth, by the sun, etc., although the mind of the swearer be under these words to swear by him who created them, yet this is not an oath, meaning this is not a binding oath. Rabbinical tradition thought that if you swore by heaven, if you swore by the temple, you swore by any created thing or person, You could break that oath because it wasn't really an oath. What's also striking here is another rabbi writes this. If any adjure another by heaven or earth, he is not guilty. In other words, if he swears to God and urges somebody to do something or to confess something. But if he does it by heaven or by earth, it's not binding. That was common, friend, in the first century. In fact, it still remains part of Jewish rabbinical tradition. And see the parallel with Matthew 5. What does Christ say? What Christ says here is, again strikingly, swear not at all. 
neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is its footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Again, James writes the same. Swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth. What here the Lord is telling us in his word, very basically, is that we are not to be swearing falsely. No no duplicitous oaths are permitted. And you say, well, well, why does he say then these things? Well, friend, even by keeping up these descriptions, swear not by heaven, swear not by earth, already you have the reality that Christ is not prohibiting all kinds of swearing. If it was simply swear not at all, in the sense there was no room for religious oaths, as our confession teaches, well, then, friend, he would leave it just as that. It would simply be, swear not, swear not. But instead he's teaching the same thing that he taught in the law. The law teaches us this, And ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shall thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. And in a vow, Ecclesiastes 5, 5, Better is it that thou vowest, shouldest not vow, than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. In other words, friend, what you have in Matthew 5 and 6 is the idea that the law already had every precept given by Christ. But Jewish tradition had distorted it. That's the idea. Christ is not prohibiting this pious swearing of vows that you have in the Old Testament. But instead, he's dealing with those abuses of it that even the Old Covenant itself showed us. He's correcting, in other words, Jewish philosophers on the law. James 5 is no difference. Oaths are not themselves condemned. Those made by heaven and by earth are James's primary concern. Now, friend, I told you before that the command, of course, was in the Old Covenant, and so also were examples. Can I give you examples of people making vows and swearing oaths to God? In the New Testament, I certainly can. Friend, in Romans 1, verse 9, note what the Apostle says, God is my witness. He invokes God solemnly in the form of an oath. God is my record, Philippians 1, 8. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5, he becomes even more explicit. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. And then, friend, he solemnly carries out the, the calling down an oath in 2 Corinthians 1.23. I call God for a record or a witness upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. All of those, friend, are the constituent elements of an oath. Every one of those cases are. But what about vowing? Paul, Acts 18.18, Paul, after this tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Crimea, for he had a vow. Second Corinthians 8.6, I think is even more powerful, but it will take some explanation. And this they did, speaking of the Macedonians, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God. What's striking is, first of all, the apostle says he did not expect whatever the Macedonians did. This is more than merely than a profession of faith. This is something unexpected by the apostle. But then I also want you to notice this. They gave themselves to the Lord. In other words, the idea here is that they have pledged themselves to God. Well, friend, that really is a vow. Yes, broadly speaking, but a vow nonetheless. They have pledged themselves or given their hand, as we'll see in just a moment. And so what does this teach us? Well, friend, this teaches us that the actual practice of swearing and making vows continues into the New Covenant, just as we would expect, even according to the Old Testament prophecies. 
Paul is making vows and swearing to the Lord. So also are the church, also the church of Macedonia. And this is, of course, then showing us that when you look at Matthew 5 and you look at James 5, where you have the prohibition of swearing, the idea there is the same of the Old Covenant. When we are making a vow, it is a solemn thing. We ought not enter into it lightly, not duplicitously. We ought to do these things as God commands. Now, friend, that brings us to a few inferences. The first thing, if I can put it in the form of a syllogism, is that wherever Old Testament duty has not been abrogated, either expressly or by good and necessary consequences, and is neither ceremonially nor culturally specific, those Old Testament duties remain a moral obligation in the New Testament. Now note what I said there. If it has not been abrogated from the Old Testament, it remains in force in the New. Well then that brings us to our minor premise. What is that? Covenanting, as the constituent elements here show us, has not been abrogated either expressly or by inference, and was neither founded in the ceremonial or civil codes unique to Old Testament Israel. And thus, then, covenanting remains a duty for Christians today as much as it was a duty for the Christians of the Old Covenant. Those words, then, vow and pay unto the Lord, pertain as much to the Old as they do to New Covenant believers. And so one may, with perfect liberty, derive from the whole counsel of God what constitutes lawful covenanting, both its matter and its practice. And so that brings us, thirdly, to the matter itself. What does Scripture say about the substance, if you will, of these things? Well, first of all, I want you to notice what it says about the oath. First of all, again, it is a duty. Thou shalt, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve Him, and shalt swear by His name. Deuteronomy 6.13 That remains in force in the old as much as it does in the new. The manner, I want you to note this, thou shalt swear, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. Now note there, friend, what's joined together. I've read these texts to you already, but it's crucial for us to see how, how Moses joins the two. The cleaving to God, and also the swearing to God. The two are intimately tied. And so, friend, when you come to the covenant renewal that you have in the plains of Moab, you find this. Moses says to the congregation, Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God, and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day. Friend, what you see here, first of all, is that the oath is a constituent element of the covenant. But then how is the oath made? It is not just an invocation of God, who is creator of all things. Note how this is done in Moab. It is the Lord thy God to whom they are swearing. It is the Lord thy God whom Moses says they are invoking. In other words, the God who is in covenant, appropriated. And friend, I want you to note that there is a real precedent then to that text that I just read to you from Moab. And here's the precedent. It's Deuteronomy 26.17. So before you come to that moment of covenant renewal in Deuteronomy 29, this is what happens. This is what the children of Israel do. Moses says, Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God. That comes before their invocation of God as their God. They have avouched Him to be their God, particularly, peculiarly. This is crucial, friend. If we miss this, we miss the whole, we miss the whole ordinance itself. 
What you see here is God is not only invoked as the God of all truth and the God who is judge of all. But you see here that even in the oath, faith is a prerequisite. This avouching God is a prerequisite to swear rightly. Those who do not have faith cannot swear rightly to God, even though He is Creator. The invocation of God in this sense requires God to be owned as your God by covenant. And so, friend, whenever this is not the case, when men enter into this covenant without faith, here is the Lord's reply. What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? Not only the mentioning of it, of course, but even the swearing of it here is rebuked for those who are not true believers. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 78 says this, speaking of the children of Israel who sinned in the wilderness, they lied unto him with their tongues, for their heart was not right with them, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. They lied, he says, they were duplicitous in their dealings with God, their heart was not right with them, and thus they were not steadfast in his covenant. There is no way to be steadfast in an oath and a vow without faith. Faith, a prerequisite. But then what of the vow? First of all, friend, a vow is the acknowledgement of an obligation. Christians, first of all, we need to recognize, though this is largely disputed today, Christians are under obligation to obey the Lord. I mean, the, the apostles quite clear, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Put positively, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, says Christ, he it is that loveth me. You and I, even as Christians, are obliged to obedience. A vow is a recognition of that obligation, first of all. I mean, friend, I want you to notice that this obligation, though, is not for justification. Of course, it is a consequence. That's how James describes it. Ye see how that by the works of a man is justified and not by faith only. You see the point that James is making. Faith, true faith, that brings to us justification is a faith that also manifests itself by working obedience. The two are inseparable. Uh, Christ puts it this way famously, Let your light, that is light you already possess, so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Peter writes this, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be your, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, Glorify God on the day of visitation. The obligation is declarative as well. We are, we are in a vow recognizing we are obligated to set before the world a picture of obedience. And this is, of course, the character of sanctification. The Lord writes, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. He that abideth in me and I in him, says the Lord, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And this obligation is such, friend, that the scripture shows that glory is not reached without it. Writes the writer to the Hebrews, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Philippians 1, 9-11, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being fulfilled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Their, aim, their end there, filled with fruits of righteousness. Now friend, I labor that point for a very simple reason. The Christian is already obliged to obey. Already solemnly obliged by God to obedience. 
It is not, it is not something that we can simply ignore. It is truly necessary. Not for justification and not for salvation, but from salvation. It is necessary that we bear fruit. And so then what is the vow itself? Well, it is a promise to obedience. It acknowledges this obligation to obey, and then it so promises to do what the Lord has called. Thou, says the psalmist, and pay unto the Lord your God. And really what this is doing then, the vow is just simply recognizing our servanthood. As the psalmist does in Psalm 16, Psalm 116, verse 16, we do when we vow. We simply say to the Lord, O Lord, truly I am thy servant, I am thy servant. Friend, that means that he's saying, I will adopt the character of a servant. And this, of course, meaning a faithful servant. He says this to the Lord, which is an invocation of God and also a recognition of his obligation. Again, 2 Corinthians 8, 5. This is precisely what the Macedonians do, who first gave their own selves to the Lord and then unto us by the will of God. They gave themselves over to the Lord. That is to do as God has commanded now, friends, you look at 2 Chronicles 30, verse 8, you find the same thing. Be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but, but yield yourselves unto God, and enter into the sanctuary which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. Now, what's interesting there is in that text, the yielding yourselves to God is actually the original to give one's hand to the Lord. It shows up elsewhere in Scripture. In 1 Chronicles 29, we're told this. All the princes and the mighty men, and all the sons likewise of King David, submitted themselves unto Solomon their king. Again, that word submitted to give one's hand. And as for 10.19, you have this, and this is really the point that we're warming to. They gave their hands that they would not put, that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. The giving of the hand, the giving of this pledge, is the idea of a vow. And so, friend, what is the vow? It is saying, I will do that, swearing to God solemnly, I will do that which the Lord has commanded. Now, friend, that means then that there can be in the vow itself no material addition or subtraction to whatever we're vowing. Again, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 22, paragraph 6, writes this, No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God, or what would hinder any duty therein commanded, or which is not in his own power. And for the performance of this, he hath no promise of ability from God. Now, friend, what the Westminster divines are saying is, if the vow is a recognition of our obligation and our identity as a servant, then, friend, we have no right to create new laws for ourselves. When we make a vow to the Lord, we are simply vowing to do what is already our duty. Because this, of course, is the recognition of us being under his obligation and authority. Now that brings us, as we close here, to the manner in which we are to be doing these things. Now, friend, whether we're speaking about public or private, whether we're speaking about ecclesiastical, national, and so forth, we have to recognize that all of this work, swearing unto God and vowing to him, must be Christocentric, christ Centered thoroughly. Why do I say that? Well, friend, the apostle puts it this way: For Christ also hath once offered for sins the just and the unjust, that He might bring us to God. If in an oath and a vow we are coming before God, the Scriptures say there is only one medium through which we may do so: the one who has brought us to God through Jesus Christ. 
God had reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. The Lord here says to his disciples, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. That intimate connection between Christ and his disciples make God their Father and their God. We can't miss that this is also crucial to covenanting itself. Friend, we are not covenanting a right unless it is in Christ. We cannot approach Christ, we cannot approach God in prayer without Christ. We cannot approach God in worship without Christ. We cannot swear to God apart from Christ. He alone brings us to God. And friend, that means then, that if we are going to be really accepted by God, the God of truth and the judge of all, favorably, we need to recognize we must first of all be first found in the one who is accepted by God unconditionally, and to be found and accepted in that beloved. And friend, if we are vowing, of course, as we should be, we can only expect blessing only through Christ. God bless us, says the Apostle, with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. If there's any blessing to the vow, any blessing to the oath to be expected, friend, it must only be looked for through Christ. And that means then that this work is fiducial. It, it, it arises from faith. Faith must lay hold of Christ for justification. If we're coming before the God of truth, friend, we must be found, first of all, in the righteousness of Christ. Though this man is, though this man has preached to you, unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. It is through this Christ alone that a man may stand righteously before God. And friend, this is crucial if we're going to swear unto the Lord, if, to, if we are to invoke his name. It is only through Christ that we may stand. Then take even Peter's words. Ye also are lively stones built up a spiritual house and a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. If we're vowing to do anything, friend, this is our obligation. How are the things that we are vowed to be accepted? Here says the apostle, they are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Covenanting necessarily is Christocentric, and it's based predicated upon faith. And friend, it also is predicated upon faith because covenanting looks to covenanted grace to fulfill that which we are required to obey. And so, friend, being not without law to God, says the Apostle, but under law to Christ, then the, then the Apostle speaks of being obligated to fulfill the law of Christ. You see, for the Christian, the law of Christ comes to them, obliging them, yes, but note that it comes to them through Christ. Their obligation is to obey in Christ. And what does that mean? If the law comes to us through Christ, the law can come to us in three ways. It can come to us as the law of works, it can come to us as the law of faith, or it can come to us as the law of Christ. Principally, it's the same precepts. But when it comes to us through the law of Christ, if it's tendered through the hand of the mediator, friend, we also have to recognize it comes with the promises of God. That he would fulfill, even in us, those promises that his people will be a willing people in the day of his power. And so says the apostle. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. This ability to obey, this ability to work, to do that which we are obliged to do, which we vow to do in covenanting, the sufficiency for it comes from God, says the Apostle. Then he writes to the church, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. 
Covenanting looks to the sufficiency that is supplied by God through Christ alone. There is no sense, friend, in which we are covenanting rightly if we're covenanting to obey apart from the grace of God. It runs right contrary to the scriptures to do anything, to deal with God in any way, than by faith in Christ. And covenanting is no different. And it's, of course, predicated upon the promise. We are covenanting to be the Lord's. Why? Well, very simply, says Jeremiah, it's because of this. The Lord has said, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. When the covenanter looks to covenanting grace, he looks to God's promise here. Note what the Lord says. I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. Ezekiel says very much the same thing. A new heart, says the Lord, also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will make take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments and to do them. Friend, when the covenanter vows to be the Lord's and to obey what God has commanded, and he looks to the grace of God to do that, he is simply looking to these promises that the Lord has made. Says the Lord, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my judgments and do them. And so, friend, as we do close here, we can't miss then that covenanting in this case is simply a renewal of the covenant of grace. This is vastly misunderstood, but we can't miss this. Uh, Cunningham, a Reformed Presbyterian minister who wrote the book, The Ordinance of of Covenanting, a wonderful text in the 19th century, writes this. Covenanting is the exercise of either entering into, in an individual or social capacity, solemnly and formally, into the covenant of grace or renewing of it. That's what covenanting is. Why, Why can you say that? Well, friend, we're saying that because the things that we are vowing to do are already obligated on those who are in the covenant of grace. The obligation to obey is already there. And it's already there for those who are in covenant with the Lord through Christ. And then, friend, again, we're not adding to or taking away from any of that. It simply stands for us as it is in God's Word. And how are we doing this? Well, friend, we're doing this only through Christ, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace. And so all that we're doing, friend, is we are recognizing, first of all, our obligation as redeemed creatures to obey that which Christ has commanded. And at the same time, we're recognizing that if we are to be really obedient, well, friend, the sufficiency of it can only come through Christ. All of these things, friend, are in the covenant of grace. And the Arkansas renovation, the first covenant renewal, as covenanters puts it this way, and we close with this. We look not upon the covenants, National and Solemn League, uh, documents we'll look at God willing next Lord's Day. To be the same with the covenant of grace. But note what they say here. Yet we conceive of them as a solemn, superadded, and new obligation, whereof the covenant of grace is the spring and foundation. Friend, when we speak as covenanters, we're not talking here at all about creating a new obligation. We're not talking at all about creating a new law for ourselves. And neither are we talking at all about a sufficiency that lies within our own members. All that we are doing is we are solemnly rededicating ourselves to Jehovah through the Lord Jesus Christ to be his people, to be his servants. Looking at all times to Christ 
and Christ alone for that sufficiency, but recognizing humbly and sincerely that we have a debt of love to he who has redeemed us with his own blood. That is covenanting, beloved. That really is its summary and its form. Now, God willing, next Lord's Day, we will take up those two covenants I just mentioned, the National and Solemn League, a few further principles that are derived from them. But, friend, this is, this evening, covenanting as an ordinance, something that we believe to be a duty, and God willing, at the end of this month, something that we as a congregation will engage in. And we look, of course, in all of these things for the Lord to bless us and as we seek these things through Christ. As we close, let's rise once more to go before our God in prayer. Almighty and gracious God, we come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that it is only because we may be found accepted in the Beloved that we may expect expect any good thing from you. And Father, the weighty work that we are set about here, to understand that which you would have redeemed creatures engage in. Uh, Father, we pray that these meditations would help us, would remind us that we are not our own, that we are bond with a purpose, that Christ has paid that price at the cost of his own blood. And so then we ought to be a willing people, and by your grace will be made a willing people to do all that is commanded of us. Father, we ask that you would take up these times as we study your word to strengthen us in knowing our duty, but also inclining us to that which you can give us. And now, Father, as we turn to your worship, we ask, Father, that even these meditations will be useful for us as we seek to be faithful in this present evil age, as we seek to set forward Christ, his glory, and his glorious work of redemption, even among us. Lord, we ask that you pardon our many sins and be with us in the hour to come. As we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.